I want you to think of some qualities of a person, okay? Not a person, but qualities of a person. What type of attributes or characteristics or qualities come to your mind when you hear this sentence? All the men in the church wanted to be like Mr. Fred. Well, I named a person, so that's not anybody's name here that I'm aware of, but what type of qualities or attributes come to your mind about that kind of person? What most characterizes a man in the family of Christ that other men should want to emulate? What about this sentence? Miss Susie was the most beautiful lady in the church. What are the distinguishing marks of a daughter of God that the other daughters of God ought to aspire to be more like her? What is it that permeates her life? Or how about this one? What thoughts emerge in your mind when you hear these two sentences? I regularly catch wind of the dads of Grace Church having told their sons to carefully watch the life and labors of so-and-so if they want to know what it looks like to be a God-honoring man. Or this one. It's common around Grace Church to hear that ladies, not necessarily even the mothers, but ladies are telling the younger ladies to watch the life of so-and-so if they want to see a shining example of a God-honoring daughter of God. What kind of qualities, what kind of attributes, what kind of expressions come out of a life that's worth emulating in the church? Well, today's sermon text gives us a spirit-inspired profile of men and women who treasure Jesus. That's the title of today's sermon Jesus treasuring men and women. The sermon in one sentence would be this. Christ's churches, now I'm going to take out the parentheses and just give you the simple first. Christ's churches portray the beauty of the gospel and advance his purposes in the world. Now let me give you the way our passage helps us understand that. It goes like this, Christ's local churches comprised of brothers and sisters who treasure Jesus and embrace our, our God-ordained design, portray the beauty of the gospel and advance his purposes in the world. One more time, Christ's local churches comprised of brothers and sisters who treasure Jesus and embrace our God-ordained design portray the beauty of the gospel and advance Christ's purposes in the world. Whereas there's a lot of work to do. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 15. I invite you to that place. And if you are able, and if you would let your standing indicate that you're eager to hear and obey God's word. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand with me today for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, 
petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Verse nine. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Please remain standing as we pray. Oh God, make us love to hear and love to heed your good word. Cause us to delight to live according to the light and truth of your word, empowered by your spirit as those who have been purchased by your son. Call the brothers of Grace Church to holy living and desperate prayerfulness. Woo the sisters of Grace Church to the beauty of faith-filled womanhood in your sight. Cause all of us to humbly embrace your good, satisfying, gospel-advancing purposes in your church. And we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's two parts of the passage, verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 15. Verses 1 to 8, men who treasure Jesus or Jesus treasuring men. In verse 9 to 15, women who treasure Jesus, what would those people's lives look like? Well, this isn't everything God has to say, but this is a good bone structure of the basic shape of the life of those who love Jesus. Verses 1 to 8 is about men who treasure Jesus. And it's one beautifully crafted golden chain. It has six links in that chain. And the links are this. Verse one, do this. Verse one and two, for all people. Verse two, with this aim. Verse three, on this basis. Verse four to seven, because of the gospel. And verse eight, so like I said, do this. Pray. So let's look at the parts of that in verses one to eight. First, do this, that is be prayerful. Look at verse one. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. That little phrase right at the beginning of the verse, first of all, signifies that it's first in a sequence 
of many other exhortations that Paul's going to write to Timothy for the church that he pastored. That's the church at Ephesus. So it's first in a list of many other things, but it's also first in the sequence, which means that it holds a place of very high importance. But let your eyes fall on that word urge. First of all, I urge. This word means earnestly asking you, diligently pleading with you. I'm making an appeal to you. This is an earnest request. This is a serious appeal. First of all, I'm earnestly urging you. This is important. This is serious. Now look at the specifics of that prayer. This is still the first link in the chain. There are four types of praying that are listed in this verse. Look at verse one. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. What Paul's saying is not, oh yeah, did you forget to do your thanksgiving or did you forget to do your entreaty? That's not what he's after. If you just want to put them all four together, he's saying prayerful praying. No more space filler. Grace Church, stop praying at the beginning and end because that's what you're supposed to do. Seek God's face. These are four expressions of prayerful praying. The word entreaty, every single time that word is used in the New Testament, 100% of the time is directed to God. It's an earnest form of prayer that's focused on specific, particular needs. We must have this. God, you alone can provide this. The second form, prayer, this is the general word for prayer in the New Testament, but it's in reference to bringing something or someone before God. This word is used mainly to talk about asking for God's blessing on somebody. God, they must have this and you alone can provide. To entreat God is to say, we have to have it, you alone can do it. To pray is to say, they have to have it, you alone can do it. Petition. This word carries the idea of a deep concern for the one for whom you're praying. It's a care for others. It's being cognizant of their plight and their difficulty. You can only offer a petition in this sense insofar as you genuinely care for the person for whom you're praying. And then finally, thanksgiving. Not only does Paul urge the church to intercede for all men, but to do so with thankfulness. This is such a precious aspect of prayer. It's the same emphasis that Paul gives to the Philippian church and to the Colossian church and to so many others in Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't forget, when you're praying, tell God thank you. Or to the Colossians, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Why is thanksgiving essential to serious prayer because it changes you. 
You cannot tell God thank you for someone else and simultaneously see that person removed from God's purpose and plan. See, Thanksgiving requires something of us. It would sound like this, God, I thank you for this person or that person. I thank you for putting them in my life. I thank you for the authority that they have. I thank you for their leadership over me. In other words, by saying thank you, you are necessarily saying to God, I trust you and I trust your plan. So these four types of praying underline the two most important reasons that we must pray. Prayer changes things and prayer changes us. So men, engage in prayer. Entreat God. Bring people before Him. Make specific petitions and be thankful. That's the first link in the chain. The second link in the chain is for whom? For all mankind, verse 1. Especially, verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. Now imagine this. Try to picture this verse. It's the first century. You're in the church at Ephesus. Timothy gets a letter in the mail. He opens it and he starts to read it. And Paul, sure enough, told Timothy, who pastored the church at Ephesus, oh, brothers, let's pray for all the kings and all the people who were in authority. Can you imagine that? Keep in mind that one of the people who eventually had Paul's head cut off for preaching the gospel that he writes about in verses four to six was Nero. Paul means pray for him. Pray for the civil leaders that you don't like and that don't like you. We should pray for them. Locally, nationally, internationally, because God commands us to do it. And when we pray for them, it orients our heart the right way. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. When we pray for kings and all who are in authority, you know what happens to you? Instantly, you're reoriented to realize that the one to whom you pray is the king of all the kings. He's the Lord of all the lords. Their heart is like channels of water in his hand. He directs them wherever he wills. So when we pray for civil leaders, we're reminded that Christ rules and reigns. Job 42, his purposes cannot be thwarted. We're reminded when we pray for kings, civil leaders, locally, nationally, internationally, that oftentimes they rebel against God. One of the reasons we pray for them is they would not do that. But we're also reminded of Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. And they say to God, let us do away with him. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast God's cords away from us. Verse four, Psalm two, God who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And when we pray, we're reminded that these people who think they're so powerful and oftentimes do us harm are going to stand before that same Jesus. So we read Psalm 2.10, Therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage. Worship the Son. 
unless he become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So first, prayerful praying, like serious prayer. No more space filler, no more spiritual mantra, no hocus pocus, like get on your face, brothers, and pray for kings and all who are in authority. Peter reminds us that we have to, 1 Peter chapter 2, submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the foolishness of ignorant men. So when we pray for kings and all who are in authority, we know that Jesus is the true and greater king. Like the Old Testament Joseph, who was wronged and abused and sold into slavery by his brothers, but God raised him from the dead and put him at the highest place. When we pray for leaders, we're affirming. All the earthly leaders are going to stand before the true king one day. And if they'll turn to him now, he'll be kind to them. He'll Genesis 45, 15 them like Joseph did with his brothers who had done him so wrong. Joseph bent down and kissed his brothers and wept on them. Our king will be kind to the kings of this earth. So we pray for them. But we also do so with an aim. So we pray we pray for all, especially those in authority. Third link in the chain, we pray for this aim, this purpose. Verse 2, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's two things, tranquil, quiet life, godly and all dignity. First, that tranquil, quiet life. It's a peaceful life, a peaceable life. Now, quiet doesn't mean sheltered away in isolation from that big bad world out there. Rather, it means enabled to carry out God's call on our life in his world, to live for God's glory, God's way, in God's world. We pray for civil leaders so that we can just keep going about the business of the kingdom. Tranquil and quiet life. Peaceful, peaceable life is a way that tranquility can be translated the church at Ephesus knew all about that. Now imagine this. Imagine 17 years ago when Grace Church started. It started because nobody in our city had ever heard the gospel, but somebody came from far away, like the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus and preaches Christ and explains the gospel and people believe and a church is born. Well, when that happened in Ephesus, Acts 19 tells us, quote, the whole city was filled with confusion. They started a riot. They drug Paul's friends into the theater in order to torture them. That's how the church started in Ephesus. And Paul says, let's pray for all of our civil leaders so that we can live a peaceful life. They knew what non-peaceful was. But Paul also says right here about this purpose, it's not only tranquility and quietness, but it's also godliness and dignity. That means Paul's not mainly praying for creature comforts. God, it sure would be nice if all those pagan people would get saved so my life could be a little easier. 
It's not creature comfort. It's not me-centered. It's God-centered. Godliness. Dignified life. A life unto God. Dignity in His eyes. Maybe Paul had the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah's exhortation in mind that while we are exiles in this pagan world and these pagan cities under these pagan leaders, we are still to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile. Jeremiah 29, 7. So, godliness and dignity that we can live unto God in this present evil age under even these many pagan leaders We can live unto God here, godliness and dignity. We can, Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city. One of the greatest gifts God gives to cities, communities, villages, towns, rural, urban, is the presence of a Christ-centered church in the midst of that pagan city. Do you know Though this bunch looks pretty unimpressive and you look great today. We are the salt preserving and light into darkness penetrating agent that's preserving this city. Not us alone, there are many others. But the presence of a Christ-centered church. Godliness and dignity in a congregation amidst a pagan society is one of the greatest blessings that God could ever give to a community. And there was once upon a time when cities actually believed that, so they put the church right in the middle and a steeple on top so everybody could see it and get to it as quickly as possible from every corner of the city. Those days are long gone. But we're the salt and light, preserving from ruin and penetrating the darkness with gospel love. The fourth link in the chain for the brothers is on this basis. Pray seriously for everybody so that we can live peacefully, quietly, dignified, and godly on this foundation. I'm telling you this on this foundation. It is good in God's sight. That's verse three, good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We ought to pray for our leaders so that we can live out our faith in a dignified and godly way because God wants it to be so. And the proof that we know this is good in God's eyes, this is acceptable in God's eyes, is because of the gospel. That's the fifth link in the chain, verses four to seven. Look at verse four and five again. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What God? Verse five, the only one. There's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Look at verse six. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. You can be sure that God wants God's people to live for God's glory in God's world even in this present evil age, because God gave heaven's favorite to prove it. He gave the Savior. He gave the mediator. The word for, F-O-R, in verse 5, is the link in the chain showing that monotheism, one God, and Christ as therefore the only mediator between God and men is the ground reason that such praying is good in God's sight. 
This is good and acceptable in God's sight for there's only one God and he gave the only mediator. The basis for the preceding argument is in the four. Those twin truths, one God, one mediator. So dear saints, I want you to see something, not just hear something. I want you to see the heart of God bursting forth, the eruption of the heart of God coming out of this passage. If this doesn't motivate the men and women of this church to prayerfulness for all men, then nothing else ever will. Pray for all sorts of people. Verse one, because God is not your tribal deity, he is not interested in only saving people just like you. Your salvation is an apologetic for the missionary heart of God. Just like Jonah was hard to persuade in the Old Testament that God wanted to save those dirty Ninevites, God wants you praying for all sorts of people because verse four, he fully intends to decorate the trophy case of eternity with converts to Christ from all peoples. This is nowhere more clearly illustrated than in the reality that the one God sent the one mediator. Instead of sending various saviors for various people, he sent the one mediator for all people. Let your eyes fall on verse six, just to see again what that mediator did. What's God's word? He gave himself, that's the man Christ Jesus, gave himself, here it is, as a ransom for all. That's a payment price. You see, it may sound odd to our modern spiritually untrained ear to say it this way, but God loves God so much that God will not compromise God to make you his friend. God is so in love with God that God will require that God get full payment for the crimes you've committed against God for God to become your friend. Jesus gave himself as that price. Spurgeon said there's many ways to Jesus, but he's the one way to God. He's the one mediator between God and men. Jesus gave himself as your ransom. That means that on a hill outside of Jerusalem, when Jesus was put on the cross as a victim, it was fully in accord with the plan of God for that Jesus to pay the price that nobody else could pay for me and for you to be right with God forever. The death and resurrection of his son is the payment price that must be offered if we will ever be accepted before God. In the end, every person will know that Jesus is the only mediator. They will not all know Jesus as their mediator but all will wish that they had put their faith in him. 
all will have wished that they would have known what Jesus accomplished for our forgiveness and reconciliation with God through his death and resurrection. And we should pray for all men on the basis of that gospel, that more of them would know him and that less of them would impede our efforts to live for him and advance his gospel. Paul said, He's been entrusted with that gospel, verse seven, to the whole world, to all the Gentiles, not the Jews only. There is no tribal deity. There's only one savior for all people and they all have to get that message. Have you believed that gospel? So verse eight ends the focus on the men who treasure Jesus in the church by just saying what verse one said. So do it. Be holy and pray. Lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This, this picture in verse eight of holy hands, brothers, is asking the question of consecration. Do we use these hands and these fingertips to search for illicit images online and then clasp them together in prayer to God? Do we use these hands to indulge in all kind of sin and use these hands to clasp in prayer? Paul says, lift holy hands to God. Give your whole life to God. Let your hands be clean in God's sight. No wrath, no dissension. Don't let your tongue and your heart keep you from the throne of God in prayer. This verse is not excluding the women. I want the men in every place to pray, but it's explicitly calling the men to lead the church in prayerfulness, to set a tone and a culture of humility. It doesn't mean that our voice has to fill up the whole prayer time. But we are as brothers called to set the tone of the church and the culture of the church in humility. And I say it that way instead of prayer because humility manifests itself in dependence and dependence manifests itself in praying. You can say prayers and not be humble. You cannot be humble and not pray. Depending on God together ought to be the temper of Christ's church. So we should pray for all who are in authority, locally, nationally. This church is represented by multi-nations. We should pray for the advance of godliness and God's gospel in those places like Nigeria that's had a very contentious election in the last week and India and Cuba and Ecuador, which are represented by people in the room of this little smattering of people. We should be praying for Memphis' city leadership, our mayor, Jim Strickland and Shelby County's mayor, Lee Harris, council chairpersons and police chiefs and sheriffs, Governors of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, where the people in this room live, for our federal government, executive, legislative, and judicial branches, president and vice president, House and Senate, Supreme Court justices. Do you see that if we just occasionally remember to pray for some of them, we'll have a lot to pray about? That's what Paul's talking about. Prayerfulness saturating the life of the church. Which leads then to the women who treasure Jesus. 
You see, we pray for them because we want to lead a life that God calls good and acceptable that is tranquil and quiet in all godliness and dignity. We want a life like that. We have the only mediator, so we seek God's face. Verses 9 to 15 tell us about these women who treasure Jesus. What in the world is Jordan going to say about these verses? Well, hopefully, prayerfully, I will say what these verses say. And I will say it in a way that's faithful to them and clear and good for your souls. But let me ask a question to our sisters, even as I hope my brothers are contemplating what place prayerfulness has in our heart and in this church. Sisters, do you love to be told what to do? Do you love it? Do you relish it? Do you want to be told what to do? Well, I could expand that to your brothers in Christ as well. I'm asking on the desire level before I go to the specifics because this passage, like all the others in the Bible, is undergirded with an assumption. It's under there, and the assumption is you love Jesus. Therefore, whatever he says to you in his word is something you're happy about. The assumption is that you and I are already predisposed to desire to bring glory to God in accord with his written revelation. Therefore, God just speaks. He tells us what to do. Now, verses 9 to 15 is interlocked, just like verses 1 to 8 was interlocked. Verses 1 to 8, I think, had six links in the chain. Verses 9 to 15, I think, has three. First, it's verses 9 to 10, then second, verses 11 to 14, and third, verse 15. Verses 9 to 10 is this Jesus-treasuring woman, the beginning of her profile. Her profile is godliness. That's a woman's true beauty. But before we go there, just look at the first little word in verse 9, likewise. Just like I want this for the men, verse 8, likewise I want for the women. In the same way, with the same basis, the same gospel, verses 4 to 6, the same only God, likewise I want the women. Now first, here's the first link in your chain, sisters. True beauty. Look at verse 9. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but, so not that, but this. Verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. External beauty is not the way to make yourself beautiful. Now I get, I got a timer up here, so I'm not gonna tell you how long I get because then you'll only think of that and you have an internal clock already thinking about it. But look, I've prayed so much for God's help in these moments. I get this, I get this much time and the internet and the TV gets an avalanche. And I want to say to you, on the basis of verses 9 and 10, you are already beautiful. 
as your brother in Christ, in God's providential design as one of the fathers in the church, sisters, you already have it. The beauty is already yours. The pursuit of the external is vain. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. God is still looking at the heart. He hadn't stopped since Samuel's day when God said through him, do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is still looking at the heart. And the rare jewel of Christian contentment, peace, settledness, Can I say that in a little less preachy way? Being happy with what you see in the mirror. The rare jewel of contentment of heart belongs to verse 10 sisters who abound in good works by living a godly life. Peter talks about this very same thing in 1 Peter 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be, oh God, step into this phrase, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. I love it. Here it comes, which is precious in the sight of God. How do you know that? Because... 1 Peter 3, 5. In this way, the Old Testament women, former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. You see, Paul to Timothy and Peter in his epistle, and passage after passage here I have in my notes, are re-emphasizing the reality You are already beautiful. Because you have been dressed in the righteous robes of Christ. We're talking to godly sisters here. We're talking to people who hope in the gospel of verses four to six. We're talking about people who have, sisters who have, it's right in the verse, a claim to godliness, verse 10. We're talking about daughters of the king. You are dressed in the royal robes of the righteousness of Jesus. And Romans 13, you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby making no provision for the flesh. Ladies, you're not the first to live in the Kardashian age and influencers chasing you. I know that none of us And I'm talking to our teenagers now. I know that none of us are dumb enough to believe that we're not being studied. Your social media feed's not an accident. The advertisements that come to your screen are not an accident. You are the product. You are being studied. You are being chased. You are being hunted. You are in the crosshairs. Those advertisements are tailored to you. They're coming for your heart. 
And all the influencers and all the Kardashian age are all lying to you. They're telling you something like these new filters on these new social media apps that they can fix you. If you'll look at your phone, it will project the image of what you're supposed to look like. This is from hell. This is bad. This is satanic. This is calling good what God calls evil. You are beautiful in the sight of God. You are exactly who he intended for you to be. Physique, outside, and beautiful inner woman treasuring Christ on the inside. Let me just tell you what God said he'll do to people who worship the idol of image if you're a female. If you give yourself to that God, this is what God says. Isaiah 3, in that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, their bracelets, their veil, their headdress, their ankle chains, their sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, sounds like an iPhone, undergarments, turbans, veils, Now it will come about instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, the donning of sackcloth. A branding instead of beauty. The principle's the same, it's all over the Bible. We become like what we behold. And if we see Christ, the inner person is transformed into his image. And if we see what the world's trying to sell us, we're going to be transformed into that. This gold and braided hair and costly garments that are in the passage are because, let me just read it to you. I don't want to skip this because this brother helped me. New International Greek New Testament Commentary. That guy said, the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry, and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature, that's what was happening in Ephesus, of the inordinate time, expense, and effort that elaborately braided hair and jewelry demanded. Paul's not just talking about ostentatious display. Look how I look but also as the mode of dress of courtesans and harlots. I think what Paul's saying is these ladies in the church were trying to present themselves sensually like an upper-class prostitute. It's the sensualness of it. Ladies, so many are trying to chase your wardrobe by getting you to believe the lie that you're not already beautiful. We've had a clothing problem since Genesis 3. It's not going away until the return of the Lord Jesus. But it is possible It is absolutely by the Holy Spirit possible 
to not give ourselves to garments that will rot and be moth-eaten, James 5, 2. By the Holy Spirit, it is possible to not give ourselves to gold and silver that will rust, which rust will be a witness against us and consume our flesh like fire in the last days, James 5, 3. We do have a clothing problem. The answer is not disconnected from Jesus. The solution to the heart longing, Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep putting on Christ. Just put Christ on and make no provision for the flesh. I want to speak to the men and boys for just a moment and then the last doozy of a passage. (laughs) Brothers, for the glory of God, let us refuse to contribute to the objectification of women and find attractive what God calls beautiful. One of the most powerful ways for godly sisters to live the lives of godliness that they're called to is for us to honor what God honors and hold in high esteem what God holds in high esteem. And if we will covenant, so help us God, to serve and protect and honor our sisters, then they'll feel right. They'll feel at home in the family. That's our calling. So, you're already beautiful. You have a God-ordained design. There's been a big news thing that I don't honestly know a ton about, but I know enough about to know that the superstar player for Memphis's NBA team may be in jeopardy of forfeiting hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from making some unwise choices. And from what I understand, it's an effort to look a certain way in the eyes of a few people who don't really love him. And I use that as an example to say somebody needs, I've heard people who may not even know the Lord saying somebody needs to come alongside him and love him and speak truth into his life. So similarly, I'm saying women giving up external glory for the sake of looking a certain way in the eyes of a few people need somebody to come alongside them and say, what what do we need? You have a design by God. Now, verses 11 to 14 tell you about that. Men are to lead the church, and Paul gives a powerful illustration to prove it. I believe verses 11 and 12 are about elders, pastors. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That quietness cannot be absolute silence because that same word for quiet in verse 11 and in verse 12, quiet, quiet, verse 11, verse 12, is used in verse 2 about Paul. And men, same word, that we may live tranquil and quiet lives. So he's not talking about being a mute. He's not talking about never saying a word. He's talking about a function, a role, I believe an office that carries the function. So the context and the broader scope of all of Paul's writings cannot mean an absolute prohibition about women being spiritually edifying even to the whole family of God, the brothers included, through verbal comments in and among the church. 
I believe verses 11 and 12 are talking about the gathered assembly of the church when we are functioning as that body of Christ assembled and the ministry of the word should come from men. That's verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I believe Paul means in a setting just like this. Not all the functions of all the church, but this whole assembly gathering that is restricted to male-only eldership. When, when he says not teach or exercise authority over a man, he means, I believe, authoritative teaching, a function reserved for male-only pastors. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14. This is a big deal because, as Paul illustrates, verses 13 and 14, the way sin entered the world was roles being reversed. Now, does Paul never want women to teach? If that's the case, you've got to scratch out Titus 2.3. You've got to t- scratch out 2 Timothy 3.14. You've got to scratch out Acts 18.26. He didn't mean that. But he did mean there's something about our design by God, our role under his creative genius, verses 13 and 14 tell us about. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. He's talking about Genesis 3, the fall. Now, I'm going to land this by borrowing from another. When Mark Dever preached from this passage, he cited Lig Duncan, who formerly pastored in Jackson, Mississippi, as saying this. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the animals Instead, they submitted to one. Eve, who's supposed to submit to Adam, instead urges him to join in sin. Adam, who should have said to the serpent, stop tempting my wife, I'm in charge here, instead passively stands by while the conversation progresses. Adam, who should have been defending God's honor, instead silently sits there while an animal over whom he's been given dominion dishonors God by calling God stingy, selfish, and a liar. The whole passage reeks of role reversal. Animal over woman, woman over man, man preferring himself over God, man passive when he should have been active, woman active when she should have been passive. My friend, fellow pastor down in Tampa, Justin Perry said, the order we experience in this world is a summons to the origin of God's good care for his creation, that order is to be clear both in the home and in the church. It doesn't mean women are more deceivable or not even better preachers. I'm certain that that would not hold here. That's not the point. Who can do what better? Who's easier to deceive? The point is when God's order of leadership is repudiated, it brings ruin and damage. Men and women are both prone to sin when we forsake the order God has intended for us. So Grace Church, pray for your elders. Pray for us that we would teach faithfully and guard well. Because we're living in a day when many people abhor God's good design. They hate it. They don't love to be told what to do. And on behalf of the pastors of this church, I want to say we thank God for the women who model true godliness among us. 
and the men who embrace our humble calling to be prayerful lead servants in this congregation. So if you want to be saved, I'll close here. You get verse 15, sisters. You get instruction. You get an illustration. Now you get a promise. Verse 15 is a gospel promise to sisters in Christ. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What's Paul not saying? He's definitely not saying there's an alternative way to be saved other than Jesus. He is not saying if you have a baby and survive the delivery, you'll go to heaven. Childbearing is not a means of salvation in addition to trusting in Jesus. Obviously, Paul's not saying that. He's also not saying that if the mother does die in childbirth, she will therefore then not be saved. There are two primary ways of understanding what Paul's saying. I think both from the passage make sense. Stephen Olford said, that's God trying to say a lot of stuff in a little space. The main, one of the main ways is the effect of the curse will not have the final word over you. And the second is Jesus is that child that must be trusted for salvation. I see fairly strong con contextual arguments for both of those views. And they both contain the exact same gospel promise. Let me summarize. The curse of sin will not have the final word. In the previous two verses, we were just talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. And when that fall into sin happened in Genesis 3, God immediately made a gospel promise. And when he made that promise, Genesis 3.15, that he would send the Savior, the seed of the woman, a child born of the woman, when he made that promise, many say that here Paul's saying, no matter what pains come in childbirth, because of trust in the Christ child of that woman, the promised seed, faith, love, godliness at the end of the verse, you trust in him, you'll be saved. No matter what sin tries to bring to this world and what damage it does and pain it involves, you trust in Christ, you'll be saved. Or, and I think maybe more likely, the effects of sin that still mark even the saved the curse that's still in this world, the pain we all still experience will not have the final word. God will one day remove all the effects of the curse and those who persevere in faith will be saved, not only from the penalty of our sin, but one day the presence of sin. So back in Genesis 3, when God made that promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The gospel will happen. God has a plan to rescue sinners. The very next verse says, Genesis 3.16, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. So many understand this text in Timothy to be saying that Paul means, although pain is involved in childbirth and it is a result of the fall, Nothing that sin has brought into the world will have its final say. You will be saved even through that. Now for us, we live in a day of modern technology. Big hospitals, all kind of anesthetics. And sometimes there's not as much pain in childbirth as there once was. But for centuries and millennia, even today, throughout the world, there are many ladies that don't even make it through the ordeal. But when they do, it is full of immense pain. And Paul is saying, many believe, through that. 
through the effect of the fall called pain and childbirth, God will keep his promises. You will never be lost. That pain will not define you. Christ is your captain. Paul used the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 3 when he said, if a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He didn't take the fire away, but even though the fire gets hot, God will keep his promise and you will be saved, sisters, through childbirth. I think that passage has more compelling views. Piper said, even though many women today and in history may feel the ongoing effects of the curse in the pains of childbirth and the lifelong wounds that it may leave, I urge all of our Christian sisters not to despair. God's word to you is hope not curse. God's plan for you is salvation, not destruction. So, verses 1 to 8. If you treasure Jesus above all else, brothers, it'll show up in humble, happy dependence on God in prayer. And that will mark a congregation. And we should lead in setting that culture of humility and sisters, verses 9 to 15, if you treasure Jesus above all, you will be happy to be reminded of the beauty that's already yours in the righteousness of Christ and the role he's given you in the kingdom and his promises that will never fail you. So one sentence summary of the whole passage with which we began is that Christ's churches portray the gospel and advance it in the world. This passage says that happens as we function in our God-ordained pattern to portray that beauty and to advance that gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that our sisters here will have great hope in the Messiah and any who don't know him would find the rest that comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus and that saving relationship. Father, I pray for our brothers that we wouldn't try to manufacture fakeness in our prayer time next week, but that our prayer time next week would be so robust and full of happy-hearted, humble dependence on you that it's hard for anybody, brothers, sisters, young or old, to get a word in edgewise because we're setting the tone of dependence as a church on Christ in prayer. Make us a praying church. Hear and heed our cry. And above all, in it all, for the men, the women, the boys and girls, we thank you that you're the one God and that there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Let him be held high in this congregation. We pray in Jesus' name.